Lord, this past Friday, we celebrated Veterans Day, and we are certainly thankful for all of those who serve in any of the various branches of our armed forces, and for all of those who have sacrificed so much, even the supreme sacrifice of their lives over so many years to provide us with opportunity to have the freedoms that we enjoy. We understand that all of this occurs under your sovereign oversight, and only because of your goodness do we enjoy good things. In light of all those who have given so much, we may be troubled today as we consider the state of our country and feel perhaps that their sacrifice has been in vain. And yet, Lord, we look so often at just the immediate and fail to see your hand working over time. We are still a country that enjoys more freedom and opportunity than so many around the world. So many of our brothers and sisters in Christ suffer under conditions where they live that are far worse and have been far worse for all of their lives. And yet, Lord, we would seek to be faithful. Help us to see your hand in our trials. Indeed, although our trials are lesser in many ways than elsewhere, the trials that we may be feeling now bring us to a place where we need to hear from you, and as we march through the book of Hebrews, what a passage to land on for this week. All of this we must understand in your timing, in your goodness. Help us to receive your truth and to live in it confidently, even those parts which are difficult. We pray in Christ. Amen. I've been reading a book on the history of American lighthouses. Interesting albeit a subject that doesn't have a whole lot of relevance to my daily life. I don't live anywhere near a lighthouse. But what do you know, in my preparation for today's message, I find expositor Alexander McLaren comparing today's text, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 4 to 13, to a lighthouse, in which we find a pastor's concern that his flock would perhaps fail to think rightly, fail to think correctly about the troubles, about the hardships that we all experience from time to time, which come into our lives, specifically thinking of those which come into our lives as God's discipline for our lives. It's the kind of teaching, is this text, that we don't notice much When, shall we say, the sun is shining and all seems to be well in our lives and our circumstances. Like the light from a lighthouse, the message in this part of Hebrews 12 doesn't stand out strikingly in the daytime, but at night, when the storms come upon us, Just as a lighthouse light is vital to sailors in finding their way, so when trials come into our lives, we need to see the value of God's discipline. 
God chastises and trains his children in the difficulties and in the hardships of life. We hardly care about it when God isn't taking us through hard times. But when his hand of chastisement falls, then we greatly need the encouragement and the instruction of a passage such as we come upon today. So I begin at verse 4. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. That word so often used in Scripture may be applied to both genders. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline. Like us today, very much like us today, the struggle for first century Christians was really all about the struggle they had with their sin, verse 4. Not Roman persecution, not the afflictions of the Jewish community from which most of them in the very early church had arisen. Those were problems. But the real struggle was with their sin. If it weren't for our sin, God would have no purpose in allowing us to experience hardship. He is forever working on us fundamentally in the area of our sin. There can only be full and complete peace on earth when sin is eradicated. Many unsaved persons have diligent, diligently sought after peace on earth. But without a true relationship with Christ, they strive in vain. Because peace on the outside is impossible without peace on the inside. And that's only possible when God transforms and then dwells within us. Amen. Hardship, trials, pain, these are a fact of life for all of us. But we must not draw the wrong conclusions about them. They are not a sign that we are somehow now out of favor or separated from God just because our circumstances seem to have turned against us. How dangerous it is to conclude that our trials, as many have concluded, mean that God has perhaps forgotten us, that God has perhaps betrayed us. Our trials are in fact a part of our sanctification process that he is continually taking us through for our own good. Forgetfulness, verse 5. This is a source of many of our problems. Our greatest need is not for 
new light or new revelation from God, but rather for paying careful attention to the revelation that we already possess. Like the first readers of Hebrews, we tend to forget what God taught not just here but so long ago in the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, verses 11 and 12, about His discipline. My son, God said, do not reject the discipline of the Lord or loathe His reproof. For whom the Lord loves, He reproves, even as a father corrects the son in whom He delights. So don't lose heart when God disciplines you through some affliction. His corrections, though we often don't see how and maybe won't see how for a time, His corrections are always helpful. God allows and even ordains the hardships of our lives for our good. There are two wrong responses that are typically made to God's discipline in our lives. The first is just simply to disregard it, to make light of it. The second, fainting or caving in or overreacting or pushing back against what God is doing in our lives, even rebelling against Him. In other words... When we experience God's discipline, we either tend to be numb toward God or we tend perhaps to slap it away. What we should see is that the struggles and the trials are His way in His discipline, His method of growing us to maturity in our faith. It's already been stated in scriptures that Eric cited in the songs that we have just sung. Children don't always know why they are being disciplined or how the discipline, maybe this is the part that most children don't really see why, how the discipline they experience from their parents is an act of their parents' love. It's not really necessary that children understand these things at every point. Likewise, We may not fully understand, we may never fully understand how God's discipline in our lives is working for our good. But we can trust that it is. Many people think that the things that happen to them in life happen by chance. In reality, what comes into our lives is always by sovereign intention and purpose for good. Not all things that we experience are good in themselves. There are many bad and evil things that we experience, but all things are for good and for the edification of those who love God. It is a marvel of who He is that even the worst things He works for good. Some have argued that total love, full love, would remove the need for discipline. 
That is simply not true in a fallen world. Proverbs 13, verse 24. He who withholds his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him diligently. Discipline is evidence of our Father's love. Our pain in the discipline is not a result of God's hate, but rather of God's love. The challenge for us is will we believe that? Do we really believe the lyrics of some of the songs we sang this morning? Satan wants us to think that the difficulties and trials of life are proof that God does not love us. Just the opposite is true. God's discipline in our lives can even come at the level, note in our text, of scourging, verse 6. This points to the fact that God's discipline can sometimes be severe and seems to us to be How could this possibly be from God? When our disobedience, when our apathy is great, His corrections can be quite firm. Our suffering may be intense, but it is meant by God for our good out of His love. Even in scourging, I'm not thinking here of literal scourging, although some have experienced that, but even in trials that come across very much like scourging, extremely painful and difficult, long pain and difficulty, even in such things, we are not being, by God, judicially punished. We are saved in the blood of Christ. We are not being treated in these things by a God who is judging us, for Christ has carried all of the penalty of all of our sin on the cross. God as Father, God as loving Father, gives us painful, corrective chastisement, just as loving parents do with their own children, wanting their children to grow up in the right way. Many Christians have given grateful testimony that the only way that God got through to them in their sin, in their disobedience, in their stubbornness, was to allow them some painful ordeal. The loss, perhaps, of a job, a severe illness, persecution for their faith. Only after which, they testify, did they come to recognize these things as a sign of God's fatherly care. For them, the kind of care that only beloved children receive. Without it, we, we become too comfortable with our world, with our fallen world, with our own sinfulness. C.S. Lewis said it well God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world. 
We may think of that statement of Lewis as in regard to reaching the lost, and there is application there, but it applies to us as believers. God sometimes must discipline us firmly to get our attention and keep us from bad things that we would otherwise engage in in our lives. The reason that God fills our lives with perplexities and troubles is that we might learn to hold Him fast. The Lord lovingly takes steps to drive us out of self-confidence, which is the fallback position for all of us in sin. He does these things that we might all the more and only trust in Him and attach ourselves as firmly as possible to Him. Experienced parents know that positive reinforcement through instruction, through encouragements, is valuable. But positive reinforcement alone is not enough. We are fallen, sinful human beings who will often balk at good instruction, who will often buck the very correction that God gives us for our growth. So there must not only be positive discipline, but also negative consequences for our failing to progress. Even painful punishment when we rebelliously transgress the rules. So as it is with children, so it is with us in our relationship with the Lord. He will rebuke us. He will deal firmly with us when we carry on in unconfessed sin because he knows just how bad unconfessed sin is for us. We don't enjoy his admonishments at such times, but we need them. Many Christians would prefer a benevolent grandfather type of God in heaven whose prime interest is only in our contentment. Many today in the church teach that that is the sort of God that we have to deal with. Rather than a father whose prime interest is in our character. Which do you deem is better for you, for us? Sometimes God employs what we might call corrective discipline. As with King David, after adultery and murder, he lost the son that came about from the illicit union he engaged in with Bathsheba. Violence also attended David's home as a result. His son Amnon raped his half-sister Tamar. Absalom, his other son, murdered Amnon and later revolted against his father. But David learned from God's stiff discipline, stiff corrective discipline, and David grew in grace. The evidence of how good God's discipline was for David is found in his repentant Psalm 51. Psalm 119, verses 67 and 71 the psalmist speaks to the value of God's corrective discipline. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. 
those of us who've studied, and you have probably seen it as you've read through the Scriptures, as you consider the life of David, it would appear that David was not really a very good human father. It doesn't appear that he spent much time disciplining his children, perhaps because he had lost credibility as a role model given his own sins. As a result, his children grew up a mess. But even given the poor example of David raising his children, one thing is clear as you read through the scriptures. He still loved them. Even Absalom, who betrayed him, never fell out of David's love. Meeting Absalom's army in battle, David's kingdom was gravely threatened and his very life in jeopardy. All that David had worked for throughout all of his life hung in the balance at the battle that was fought against his son. As the day wore on, news came from the front that the battle had been won by David's forces and his usurping son, Absalom, had fallen. David wept. To the dismay of his generals, David felt no joy in victory, but only remorse for his son. If that's how David felt about a son he had not given time to raise properly, how do you suppose God feels about each of us, his beloved children, that he has so carefully engaged in raising? We should accept and profit from the discipline that he lovingly gives us. Then there is God's preventive discipline. Forestry experts tell us that when small trees are cleared away, some of the very large trees will subsequently simply fall down. Why? The small trees... We're shielding the big trees from nature's various assaults. And thus, the large trees never develop the strength to stand on their own. God allows his children to undergo hardships. He doesn't shield us from them. He does this that he might prevent us from succumbing when our faith is tested. Take the Apostle Paul, a humble man, but God still gave him a thorn in the flesh to prevent him from becoming conceited since Paul was the recipient of such magnificent revelations of God. This very thing is taught 1 Corinthians 12, verses 7 and 8. Now consider Job's suffering. Job's suffering really wasn't corrective. He was not sinning badly and therefore needed correction. Some of his suffering was certainly preventative. But more often, or more obviously rather, Job's suffering was what we might call educational discipline from God. Job's Job's own words at the end of the book... Chapter 42, verses 4 and 6, show that Job learned much 
about the Lord in the very suffering that he endured. Job's discipline came not because he was doing poorly. His discipline came because he was doing well. When all was said and done, Job gained a greater intimacy and understanding of God. He was upright and spiritual to begin with, blameless above any others in his generation. But through the ordeal, through the sufferings, through the trials, the hardships, Job ascended to undreamed of levels of spirituality. And God desires to do much the same with you and I. Verse 8. But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. An undisciplined child is a miserable and unloved child. God's love will not allow him not to discipline us. I think back to my father's court. The juvenile court system was a constant testimony to the truth that a child who gets his own way brings shame to his mother, Proverbs 29, verse 15, as well as he brings shame to the whole family and even the community. By contrast, we can be certain that because God will always love us, he will always discipline us while we are in this life. Many people profess to be saved but they never seem to be disciplined. They always seem to get away with disobedience. If we disobey God and we remain unrepentant and the Lord never disciplines us, we should wonder if we are truly saved. God disciplines those He loves. Those who claim to be Christians but are never disciplined by God are counterfeits, not legitimate children. When we look at how well many unbelievers are doing and that at how much trouble perhaps we are having, we should take this as evidence that we belong to a loving God and they do not. If they are without discipline, they are not sons of God. Thus, we should pity, not envy, prosperous, healthy, popular, attractive persons who don't know God. The fourth century church father, Jerome, said it in a paradoxical way. The greatest anger, the greatest anger of all is when God is no longer angry with us. The supreme affliction is to be unteachable and unreachable by God. When the Lord disciplines us, what we should say is, Thank you, Lord, for you have proved again, as you often have proved, that you love me and that I am indeed your child. 
Verse 9 in our text, Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us, did the earthly fathers, for a short time as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. The comparison of our fathers in the flesh with the father of our spirits is instructive. Experience shows that parents grow in respect when they are involved in their children's lives, when they have set clear boundaries and they have enforced those boundaries with discipline. Parents who try to win their children's affection by treating them as peers, by treating them as friends, by giving them what they want, by neglecting discipline, not only fail in their duty as parents, but they gain contempt instead of admiration. If discipline eventually causes us to respect our earthly parents, how much more should it be the case with our Heavenly Father? I can testify to the validity of this. When my parents disciplined me, which they did regularly and firmly, I couldn't stand it. But the older that I get, and the more wisdom that I gain, I see what they did for me that was good. So while I don't enjoy God's discipline, I know it is for my good in a much greater measure than anything that my parents ever did who were imperfect. But now, what does it mean in verse 9 that if we do not submit we might not live. Believers who drift away from God's word, believers who backslide and are disciplined by God to bring them back into a place of submission and obedience. But if they, in that process, continue to resist God's will, God may even permit them to lose their lives. Rather than allowing them to ruin their lives and disgrace his name all the more. Under the old covenant, a son who was totally rebellious to his parents, a son who could not be corrected or disciplined, was to be stoned to death. Deuteronomy 21, 18 to 21. That severe punishment shows how seriously God takes a child's obedience to his parents. A Christian's persistent rebellion against God's discipline can even cost him his life. The Apostle Paul speaks of believers sleeping, which is dying because of partaking the Lord's Supper unworthily. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 30. The Apostle John tells us of sin, a sin leading to death, 1 John 5, 16. Any Christian who continually rejects God's discipline and refuses to profit from divine, divine correction can lose his life because of his stubbornness, and some have. 
At minimum, even when God lets us go on living, which is in most cases, if our spiritual lives are static or stagnant or unfulfilling, perhaps it is because we are resisting God's discipline. And if we are, then what we ought to primarily do is repent and submit to Him. Earthly discipline has value for this world, for our short lives, however many years we have. Verse 10. But God's discipline is of eternal value for a life that never ends. Parental discipline trains children for circumstances, for pursuits, for occupations, for professions, all of which terminate with the brief span of this life. God's training is for an eternal day. Earthly fathers or parents discipline as it seems best to them. But all human parents, we know, probably by our own experience in many cases, make mistakes. Sometimes operate out of mixed motives and at times even act in sin toward their children in one way or another and yet they are still to be revered by their children. Even a bad father often exerts positive influence on children by means of the discipline that he gives. God's discipline, however difficult it may be for us to perceive it, is only working for our good that we might share in His holiness. All of God's discipline is pure, benefiting us and bringing credit to Him. Because God is love, even the worst afflictions as they pour upon our heads behind them is a hand moved by love. And even more, God's love also means that He enters into our afflictions with us. When you pass through the waters, He said... I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. And when you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior, Isaiah 45, verses 2 and 3. Now verse 11, Hebrews 12. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterward it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Discipline, God's discipline, is painful. That's how it gets our attention. But if our eye is on the horizon of a life to come, we receive a reward at the end of the trials which is great gain over present pain. Many a high school football player or wrestler during the initial training period has been ready to kill the coach. I imagine any number of young men were ready to kill Jim Emig. And some might have done so if they weren't so exhausted each day after practice. Take those same athletes 
after the season is over and after the championship is theirs and they don't kill the coach, they don't complain about the long practice sessions, they carry the coach off on their shoulders and they view the grueling practices that they had to go through as a badge of honor. Hated it while they were going through it, but see it later as a badge of honor. Coaches who really know how to discipline their athletes are loved and respected. Tom Landry, famous coach of the Dallas Cowboys, said it so well. The job of a coach is to make men do what they don't want to do in order to be what they've always wanted to be. Friends, that is what our Lord is doing for each of us when He disciplines us. He is making us what we were meant to be and what in our sanest moments we want to be by means that we would never choose on our own. Finally, verses 12 and 13, Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak and the knees that are feeble. And make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Well, many have struggled to understand what these verses mean in context. Perhaps the focus is now on our actual physical bodies, which we should care for, seeing them as God's masterpiece mirroring the very image of Christ. The implied point is then a contrast. As we care for the physical body, so God cares for us spiritually by means of His discipline. We are physically and even more spiritually as a result a divine work of art. But maybe verses 12 and 13 mean when hardship comes, When God is disciplining you, throw your whole body, throw your whole self into it and be spiritually healed as a result. Don't let the hardships, don't let the trials throw you out of joint. Some think verses 12 and 13 are speaking of the body of Christ collectively. As God disciplines his church, we should care for the needs of one another in the body. Watch, therefore, your influence on others. Take care that you're not a stumbling block for others who are traveling along God's road with you. Especially that you be not a stumbling block for those whose faith may be weaker than yours. In this case, then the race metaphor from verse 1 is being extended. When the running gets tough, get tough yourself and go for it seems to be the meaning. Help one another along. Keep focusing on Jesus and you'll get through the immediate hardships. I don't know whether one of those is the right way to understand these two verses or whether there's another way that I haven't thought of, but all of them have meaning that would make sense. But finally, considering our whole passage this morning, if you have not trusted Christ as your Lord and Savior, you don't have the comfort of knowing that your trials are governed by God's loving care. The wrath of God still abides on you. 
If you have not trusted in Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are alienated from God's love. Your trials are therefore merely the bitter fruit of sins, yours and others. Without any saving purpose, until you repent and believe and come to God as a child through faith in Christ. But if you are a Christian, you can fix your eyes on Jesus, glorified now in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, a God who in his love sent Jesus, our Savior, to die for our sins. For Jesus, there was a cross before the crown. Though the cross took away our sins once for all, his pattern of trial before glory will be our pattern as well. The 18th century English poet William Cooper spelled disturbingly for English speakers, Cowper, C-O-W-P-E-R, but pronounced Cooper. He learned this in his greatly troubled life. Cooper's mother died when he was a little boy. And he was deeply scarred by abuse that he received in the years following at a boarding school. The result was severe depression that afflicted him many times. And then in his early 30s, a series of events. The death of his father. The death of his stepmother. The drowning of his closest friend and his utter failure to secure a livelihood caused, brought about in Cooper a mental collapse of huge proportion. Many people exhorted Cooper, but one minister took the time to explain the gospel to him. The good news that God has sent his own son to die for Cooper's sins. And while in a mental asylum, Cooper became convinced of this from the scriptures, especially Romans 3 and verse 25. Cooper would still struggle for many years to come, but it was never quite the same now that he knew God's love for him, a love greater than his trials that gave meaning to all of his trials. So are you in hardship, toil, difficulty, sorrow? If you are not currently, you surely will be soon. But it makes all the difference to know that God loves us and to know that through faith in Christ. To know that even in our sorrows, God's training us in his love, preparing us for an eternal glory in heaven. That makes all the difference between wandering aimlessly and running the race with conviction, between darkness of soul and the light of the gospel. Let's pray. Lord, we do not like your discipline. We would turn from it. We would seek to avoid it. 
Help us to have the faith that knows that it is for our good, to submit to it, to see your hand where it is hard to see, to trust that you are at work in our lives in special ways, perhaps the greatest ways, that we may even in such hardship consider it all joy. For you are a perfect and loving Father. Help us even in the hard things to love you back and see it as preparation for the glory of eternity in your presence which will last forever and ever and ever. We pray. Amen. Rise, if you will, for the benediction. The trials, the hardships, the toils may seem to beat you down. Can you, will you see them as God's loving hand over your life? That will change everything in him to part in his peace. Amen.